0: Welcome to another episode of Business School. My name is Phineas Ellis. I am the co-founder of Stereotype Studio, a podcast production company. And
1: hey, my name is Stephen Cool. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Burrow, a direct-to-consumer furniture brand.
0: This is a show where
1: we explore the many aspects of consumer startup culture. Okay, really excited to announce
0: the guest of this week's episode. And I'll start with just a tiny bit of background on how we know each other. And then I'm going to have him go into his business in a little bit more detail. But Caleb Ebel and I worked together in the early days of my first ever real job, which was at a relatively small eyewear company called Warby Parker at the time. He was on the finance team and uh, would work until extremely late hours i mean he was just always one of those people that's always in the office and you resent him a little bit because you know he's his job is more important than your job but he also works so much harder than you that it made me stay longer even though i wasn't doing anything while i was staying longer uh more recently he's done a number of things in between then and now but more recently he started a company called backdrop which is a paint business and I don't know enough about the industry to go into detail about it, but welcome, welcome, Caleb. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me.
2: I mean, that we should have talked about this when we were at Warby because I was just staying late because you were there, and so we were just like <laughs> perpetuating the problem.
0: I know, if, I know that that's not true, but I appreciate the sentiment. Um, can you give us a little bit of background on your business, where you're at today? Not too extensive in terms of the founding story because we're going to get into it throughout the episode, but sure. tell us a little bit about what you're up to.
2: Yeah. So Backdrop is, we say it's the new way to paint. It's rethinking the very large, but also very stale architectural paint market in North America. And so we've been doing that for the last couple of years. And our approach is basically to take a lot of the pain and complexity out of the experience. And so, you know, paint is the cheapest and most transformational way to change your space. And we always say that we want paint to be a design purchase as impactful as that kind of a couple thousand dollars sofa and as cheap as the $65 throw pillow. And so that's our approach to paint with backdrop.
0: So an e-commerce paint company for when I'm remodeling my house or moving into a new apartment, is it subscription business? Do you make the paint yourself? Talk a little bit about sort of the, the makeup and structure of the business.
2: Yeah. So it's, it's not subscription, although surprisingly high levels of repeat purchasing happening in the paint category, which. You know, we had a hypothesis around, but kind of unexpected for other folks, but you know, the DIY painter, they paint a room at a time. And so they move sequentially. And at some point they may max out the rooms, but they also move very frequently. And so, you know, more than 30% of our revenue in any given month is repeat revenue from, from customers coming back, which is obviously one of the most important things to us, which is like a vote of confidence on experience and and product with real dollars. And so we work both with DIY painters, we also work with professionals, Paint is also a unique category in that there's like two sides of the market. There's a professional side of the market, which is very much like interior designers, home stagers, real estate agents, and uh, paint contractors, the big piece of that. And we work with all those stakeholders. And then we also work with people like me and my wife, Natalie, who started the business together based on our DIY experience painting apartments in New York City.
1: How did you tackle the challenge of you know, paint looks a certain way on a screen, in another way at Home Depot, and another way when you actually yeah. put it on your wall. How do, you, how do you help people through that
2: process? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a challenge to solve. We spend a lot of time thinking about it. I mean, it's not that different from other categories where you, you're trying to sell a scent, a candle brand, you know, things where, that are very like, you know, uh, ethereal, trying to s- communicate what that looks like or smells like on on a computer screen or a phone screen can be challenging. Our approach has been that uh, we did a few things that made that a lot easier for our customers, right? So uh, the starting point is we curated a tight color palette of colors that we really put our stamp of approval on. And what we do is we are kind of dead simple on how we communicate that color. So we give you the description of the color as often as we can and say, well, Surf Camp is a dark blue with green undertones. We kind of train your eye to start seeing that color. We have you know, color swatches that are exact color match that allow you to see the color in your space and move it around It's a better way to sample the color. But we opted, a lot of the traditional paint companies because they have infinite color selections, basically 3000 colors in their palette, they lean very heavily on digitally rendered presentation of color in space. And, you know, the technology is just not there really. And consumers see right through that, right? And so the digital rendering of color is just not as helpful. And so we opted to really focus on showing real paint in real spaces with real people and so we very early on prioritized that content and so one of the things we're most proud of is the gallery on our website which is just that it's like a massive scroll of user-generated content of of real paint in real spaces and it's a huge asset for selling paint color to customers because they get to see it in a lot of different contexts different styles different light types etc and so that and it's content just keeps building on itself. So it's truly like a golden asset for, for us. So those are like some of the most important things. And then, you know, even in, down to the, you know, the e-commerce merchandising of paint, right? Like we opted for, again, real paint. So we photographed real paint blobs, real dry rolls of paint, like we did the work so that it wasn't just like fake digital renderings that aren't that useful. And that's how you get people comfortable that that the color they're seeing is going to be the color in their space. And you know it, it's had an effect, right? Like over half of our customers buy paint without sampling the color because they trust the curation, they trust the the way that we present it to them, and that's a huge vote of confidence as well that we take.
1: I also do think your your limited color offering actually significantly increases confidence. I mean, totally. Burrow leans into that concept extremely heavily too. But but there's there's truth in that where if you actually eliminate some choice, you the customer has more confidence and like, well, I, I kind of want like a light yellow. And if I don't have to pick between 17 light yellows, then at least I know like that's the color I'm getting. And I kind of trust that this company that's selling it to me has done the work for me to say, well, this is the light yellow that you want. You're not going to, you're not going to put this on your wall and think like, oh my God, I'm inside of a banana. You're going to feel like this is a, this is a really great color. So I think that's super smart. hundred
2: percent. And the Obviously there's this misinformed idea for a lot of legacy companies across categories that abundance of choice is somehow like a great thing for customers. And what you're doing is you're, you're paralyzing customers, you're forcing decision paralysis onto them in the name of like not you know, missing out on any marginal sale. So that curation is really powerful. And then when you marry that with the social proof of seeing it in other people's spaces and seeing that they voted with their own choice to choose that color as well. And that's, uh, that's really powerful together.
1: Yeah,
0: for sure. So I want to get back to the business model in a bit, but before we go there... Yeah, I could could talk about that for for hours. I know. (laughs) When we met, I mentioned you were on the finance team at Orby Parker. After that, you left and became a, if I remember correctly, eventually you became a CFO at another company. I think it was called BioLite. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you became, obviously, the co-founder and CEO of Backdrop. Can you speak to that transition from finance team to CFO and to highlight this that we actually have a listener question who submitted a question that I'm going to play voice memo on the air for you. Okay. Okay. So just have a listen, have a listen, listen closely. Turn up the volume here. Hey Caleb, this is Brian Medita from Warby Parker. (laughs) I'm
2: curious which role you prefer CEO or CFO. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks Brian. Uh, uh, well, Finance is a lot of fun, especially if you're in an organization that, you know, in in some places, finance is very much like, you know, count the beans and tell the other folks how many beans there are, right? And yeah, in some places, it's more interesting, like more of a strategic role. And so I've always tried to gravitate in those finance roles to, you know, how can finance be like a true business partner to, to the rest of the business? And so Warby was an amazing experience, good learning ground. BioLite was also really cool because it was at an earlier stage than Warby, but had a lot of interesting layers and nuance to it. And so it was a good chance for me to grow professionally and, um, you know, expand to things like supply chain operations, HR, all the, you know, the things that you have to touch in a role like that. And then, so that definitely prepared me a little bit for running a business because I knew some of the structures I, you know, I'd done some financings. I, you know, had a good network. I knew how much stuff should cost who the vendors were how not to mess up like an employment agreement all just the basic stuff that like i feel like a lot of like first-time entrepreneurs without some support can can mess up and pay the price for it later like so i at least had that and then you know kind of brought that perspective with me and when we started backdrop uh, my wife who's my business partner just much more of a creative and comes from a brain and storytelling perspective and and so when we married that together it was a good combination it was just like coincidental that this opportunity presented itself. We had been talking about it. We actually started talking about backdrop in 2016 and we had been doing some research, got excited about it. And then my wife got pregnant and we were like, she, she, especially was like, we're not starting a business with a baby or while I'm pregnant. And it's like, yeah, we probably shouldn't do that. And then, you know, six months after we had our daughter, we, started getting excited about it again and said okay we're gonna do
0: this so brian wants is gonna want a little recognition on the air brian your question was read live (laughs) caleb just like a like a true pro just breezed through it
2: oh yeah i guess i can answer him explicitly i mean uh (laughs) what what are your
0: memories really quick i'll cut it but what are your memories (laughs) of brian Vegeta in those early days
2: brian was like the hardest working dude at warby like you say i worked a lot like brian was always there always just performing and like just like he's gonna love this just like a rock of that place and a cool dude so i love brian (laughs) i feel like every successful business needs a brian so i i would love to have a brian
0: (laughs) yeah well okay so and then in terms of actually explicitly answering that question i am actually personally interested as well like What are the big differences between CFO and CEO and which one do you enjoy more? Which role are you actually better fit for and which would you enjoy more?
1: Are we caveating that both would be as founder? Because that's a big difference as well.
0: Uh, Yeah, CFO and not founder. Because you were not a founder of BioLay, if I recall right. No,
2: correct. Yeah, I joined later. I mean, I guess that's the biggest distinction, right? Like CEO, sure. I I run a small company. I am also sometimes the mailboy, the janitor, the head of HR, the accountants, right? So like, what does it even mean to be... CEO, I don't know necessarily if I'm at that stage of business yet where that distinction matters. The difference is like, there's no one else to like pass the buck to. And as a CFO role, like, sure, I had a leadership position and I was a thought partner to the CEO and had, you know, some exposure to the board. But at the end of the day, I was like one point of view in any decision making process. And the CEO ultimately had to own that decision. And so that's the difference, right? Like, Being the ultimate person that has accountability versus being a advisor to that person.
1: Yeah. No doubt. So what do you prefer?
2: (laughs) Uh, I mean, I don't TBD. I I haven't been at this long (laughs) enough to know the difference, which one I prefer long-term, but they're fun in different ways, different types of stress. I think.
1: Yes.
0: Yeah. Okay, so pivoting a little bit, one of the most interesting things about your business, I think, is the fact that you started it with your wife. Mm. Can you speak to what that's like? <laughs> you know, would you <laughs> advise other entrepreneurs to go into business with their partner? Or was it just happenstance that just sort of fell into place or was does it benefit the trajectory of the business in in some way?
1: Yeah, I feel like it's either the most amazing thing ever or it's like mixing oil and and yeah. vinegar, And you're just like, oh, God, this doesn't is, this working.
2: Well, it really, it just depends. Is it a Monday or a Wednesday, like which of those sides you're on, right? Like, I mean, the, the short answer is no, I wouldn't recommend it necessarily. And we had so many people tell us you shouldn't do it and we ignored them. And so I fully expect any entrepreneurs listening to this to ignore me. But I will tell you candidly that when it works really well, it's amazing. And when it doesn't work, it's hard and it complicates other aspects of your life. And ours was a bit of a unique case, right? Like. Natalie and I have been together since high school. Like we had a lot of history together. We've married almost 10 years before we started the business. We had a daughter, um, so we had just so much history. So that's a good foundation. Whereas, like if you are newlywed, that's a very different thing. You're still like getting to know one another, right? We couldn't be more different from like a personality and skill set perspective. And so, while that can create challenges, like our working styles are so different. We also bring very different points of view to the business and different skill sets which is what you want in like a i think a founder combo whether it be your partner or any other person so that was unique and it wasn't like hey we we said hey we're married let's start a business together it was almost like well this kind of makes sense with this combination of things that we need for this business let's start it despite the fact that we're married right You know, the reality is it complicates things right like you have so much more invested when two people in a relationship quit their jobs to work on something versus one. You amplify the upside and the downside risks of doing that. And so, yeah, it's been awesome. We, I think we have a much deeper respect for one another now because we both, you know, like any couple, right, who had careers that they cared about. It was a topic of conversation. We would talk about work, but like from each other's perspectives. And so I knew she was good at her job but I never got to see behind the scenes to see like, well, how good is she? And now I have a whole new level of respect. Like she's really, really talented and it's a whole different side of her that I only like barely got exposure to before. And I I hope she would say the same about me. I think she would.
0: So in terms of like, division of labor. How how do you guys split it up? It sounds like she handles more more of the brand side of the business and you handle, you focus a bit more on operations, supply chain, finance, all those things. Is that intentional? Or do you guys kind of oversee everything together? Uh,
2: It's pretty natural split that we just kind of gravitate towards our strengths. What I like, and you know, I didn't get that much exposure to in finance and operational roles before being a founder of a business was I, I get to be more involved in the creative side because like it's easy to be pigeonholed. Like, yes, I'm a finance person. I studied accounting in school. I'm not a creative, but I have sometimes glimmers of creativity and it's cool to be involved in the brand side and some of those decisions because it's a different muscle to flex and it's just fun work. But at the end of the day, the brand is Natalie's to steward and very much kind of her aesthetic kind of coming out through the brand. Like she is the soul of the backdrop brand. I get to just like offer a counterpoint of perspective on those things. And it's a very good, balance and we still write all the copy together that kind of stuff so that's helpful
0: what's it like to be to start a company alongside other entrepreneurs that start the same or similar concepts at at the same time you kind of both experience this to some degree you both have competition from big box right legacy retailers legacy brands but to have competition of other people that are starting out at the same time with a similar With the same if not similar concept how does that change your your strategy early on
2: i mean we really have one and and it's claire
0: and uh, i think for us
2: this is the paint category is like a handful of industrial manufacturing companies from the 1800s doing the same thing since then more or less or since like the last 50 years at least and so it was interesting that the spark of uh innovation happened with us and Claire about the same time. Like we had the ideas to start the business, worked on the business, I think very similar timeline, and then ultimately launched the business within a couple months of each other. And at the end of the day, I think it's all positive, right? Especially in a category where you're reorienting consumer perception and interaction around a product category, having two, um, two folks pulling in the same direction, this new way of doing it is valuable because it helps to cement that, you know for the customer that there is a viable new way of doing it it's obviously validating that someone else had the same idea and you know took a risk to bring it to life and whatever support network they had was backing this as a good idea as well like that's all validating i think for us the most important thing and probably for anyone is this like having a strong point of view and not looking to your competitors as like the main source of inspiration have your own point of view on what a great customer experience product and brand look like, and then sure, look around, see what other folks are doing, take inspiration from them, cherry pick the best things from everyone, but don't let that be your North star. You're never gonna win from behind by like just trying to copy everyone else. Like you have to come with an authentically differentiated point of view around those like three things, customer experience, product, and brand. And even your closest competitor, if you're being authentic about that, won't have that much overlap on all three of those axes as you, right? And so, yeah. you know, that's what we've seen, even with the close competitor, like there are a lot of differences in just the way that the brand looks and feels like differences in like how we talk to customers, ultimately the product assortment has evolved. So like we've taken divergent paths, even though the kernel of inspiration was very similar looking at a problem.
0: Yeah. Because we've seen examples of competition manifesting totally differently, right? We've seen, you know, what went away and Raiden launched basically within a couple of weeks of each other. And then within six months away, just kind of ate their lunch.
2: I don't think that that's a story of, it's not like the market wasn't big enough for Raiden in a way, like very few DTC markets are winner take all yes. and like, yeah, th- there's more than enough space in these massive categories for different points of view on the same problem. Like who knows what the backstory was for that led to that set of circumstances, but I think there's room for everyone. And when you stop thinking about this as like a tech virality, like winner take all type model. And you can just like focus on building like a very good business and stay in your lane. Like, I think that's a better recipe for everyone.
0: That's a great point.
1: Yeah, I think, Caleb, you hit on a, a really great point that competition validates your model, right? If nobody else wants to start anything similar to you, that could be really good yeah, for it you. Be a little worse. Yeah, exactly. Or that's a sign that maybe you shouldn't be doing it. And so it, it's nice to have people going after the same thing. But I completely agree. Like, you have to stay focused on what you're doing and so many people you know send us articles all the time like hey have you seen this company that does this thing and it's like yeah you know yeah. furniture's competitive like this there's, there, right. there's there were thousands of furniture companies that existed before we started right. we're just going to keep honing in on like we're going to talk to our customers develop our model and we're really confident that our model is going to be the best for the niche that we're carving out certainly and we think this is going to be a really fucking big niche uh and so this and, and we just got to keep going at that and you're right if you get caught up in looking at what other people are doing, you just lose focus on what on what you should be doing.
2: It's so easy to be like schizophrenic about it. Cause like you, if you try to like be everything to everyone, like you are nothing, right? You're just bland and forgettable and you get lost in the noise. And so like, but there's a constituent, like I always say, like, I don't know, is there enough demand for clothes? But well, you have like Draper James, that's kind of like a very kind of Southern and floral and like folksy brain. And you have Everlane that's much more kind of urban and you know, less colorful. And like, they both have built pretty big businesses selling apparel to a very different constituency. And so, which is better? I don't know, it doesn't matter. If you're a Jerry for James customer, you love Jerry for James. If you're an Everlane customer, you love Everlane. Those are both great businesses. As long as the constituency is big enough to be served, right?
0: Yeah, I love that as a, as a lesson, you know, all of these quote unquote D to C categories or the markets are plenty big for multiple players. Steven, you have co- plenty of competition. I
1: mean, we do, but ours is more like who is our biggest competitor? West Elm. Like, right. Yeah. And, yeah. and I define competition, in which we also partner with them, right? Like we sell on West Elm's website too. But our customers are more often than not deciding, am I going to buy it from Burrow? Am I going to buy it from West Elm? Mm-hmm. You know, there's just a little bit of article a little bit of cb2 a little bit of crate and barrel but that's kind of it there's very few people that are like i'm going to buy from burrow or this other direct to consumer brand mm-hmm. and that does happen sometimes i'm sure but you know 90 plus percent of the time we're competing with the big incumbents and you know kale i'd argue that's probably the same for you guys too right like you're you're competing 100%. with yes every major paint brand Sherman Williams, existed. right? Yeah. yeah,
2: and that's the real point, right? Like those guys are the competition and we at this stage are just a very insignificant share of the market. But it's cool to see that those guys being the real competition, at least in our category, because there hadn't been any new entrants in so, so long, that we, we got on their radar so early and we started to notice that even at like our very insignificant scale out of the gate, we were having an impact on what they were doing. They were like looking at us and incorporating, trying to incorporate elements of backdrop into what they're doing obviously at a much larger scale. And obviously we had some hypotheses around how they would try to do that um, before we launched our business. But it's interesting to see them taking cues from us and trying to evolve into something that is very hard for them to be because at the end of the day, when you put us on level playing field, i.e. like a new way of merchandising and selling a product online, a lot of these incumbent, you know, companies just aren't built for it. They were built for a very specific way of doing things. And they are really good at that. Like we're not going to out-manufacture certain way of paint and we're not going to have 4,500 hardware stores to service a network of contractors. That's not our business, but we can certainly sell paint online better than them any day of the week.
1: That's our business. Yeah. And there's nothing better than when they, when somebody, whether it's a big incumbent or another startup copies something that you're doing, especially when what they're copying didn't work
2: for you. (laughs) Right. With infinite, theoretically, infinite amounts of resource, right? Like we do things in the barest way, like the most lean and like scrappy way. We hack it together and then we see other folks with just like billions of dollars to play with, try to do that thing and do it less well. Like money doesn't get you there alone. Like it's not a money issue for a lot of these businesses. It's like a skill set, culture, DNA issue.
0: Yeah, for sure. What's an example of that? I mean, in the paint
2: space, the, there was this like default to like, Hey, we have every color. So of course we have your color and realizing now with these curated offerings from backdrop that that is a better, you know, especially in a non-pro situation, that's a better customer experience. Now, you know, we see a lot of people trying to like have it both ways. Like, Hey, we offer every color, but here's like the curated ones you should really look at and then trying to hone in on like, well, how can you use these sample stickers? Like that's becoming more popular obviously the notion of shipping online, a lot of brands have something like, okay, you can buy it online and go pick it up at the store. But you know, it's a very clucky, it's not e-commerce. It's not like good e-commerce experience. It's just like, I have a website so therefore I sell a product. And we've even seen all the way down to like, we kind of took a new approach on the packaging like the paint can itself. And we saw one of the paint companies kind of introduced a new top to their paint can that has like, it's still the same old paint can, but with a new top on it that Tries to get you the best of the world so it's like it's kind of we say like cold you know interesting
1: you can't just copy other people's thing. like there is a whole biz- there are tons of businesses that are huge that are just copying other people's stuff and knocking it off yes you can do that but if you want to be the leader of what you're doing it's got to be authentic and and consumers know that they can sniff it out they know when someone's For sure trying to replicate it and they know when you're the real thing
2: i, I mean if if every furniture company wanted to sell modular home assembled furniture or every paint company wants to like curate a palette and try to sell online like all the better because that is a better experience and like that's just pointing the whole sector towards those strengths right that we already have so, yeah. like sure if you, if if customers become attuned that like every piece of furniture should be modular and home assembled that plays right into your strategy and like you know that's a disadvantage for them and similar for you know, for the paint uh, companies limiting color palette and shipping online, like cannibalizes their store sales. It does a lot of things against them and plays right into their hands. So I'm happy to see them try to do that because it just helps reinforce the customer change.
0: Right. But this is why you also need to focus so much on a complete customer experience. The top down experience needs to be really, really good because they can copy that one. Like, see, you do curation, you know, mm-hmm. limited selection, and better than they do, certainly. But they can copy it, and that will hurt your business dramatically more if the rest of the stuff that you offer isn't in place. Totally. You have to do multiple things that your size allows you to do in order for your main thing to actually flourish.
1: That's so much easier to do as a small company, a growing company that's – totally focused on it exactly and these big incumbents it's so rare that they will actually say we're dedicating resources to like grow our own startup within our like utilizing our resources but actually let them work autonomously they just can't big companies have too many layers of, of bureaucracy yeah. and decision making and approvals and it just it doesn't work and like you just see it Time and time again,
0: we forget a bit that these companies. We think that you can just like put a cool brand together, get Red Antler to you know if you can afford it, uh, to throw throw a cool brand together, and you know find a market that needs disruption, sell something on the internet, right? But like the level of detail that it takes in order to protect that one advantage that you have, and ultimately you have like maybe one or two things that are actually innovative or actually different, but you have to. Protect that with a moat of the other things that your size allows you to do, like great service, like attention to detail. You know, I think that sometimes gets lost in this space. I
2: think it's a great point.
0: Yeah, if you boil something down to the lowest common denominator,
2: sure, you sell modular furniture, we sell paint online. Anyone can try to replicate that, but they don't know the secret sauce of like they haven't they don't know the details that go behind that of the customer service, the brand voice, every interaction of like how you talk to someone on social or customer service emails, you know, whatever. Like, that is the essence. But there's no getting around like you need a good quality product you need a great overall experience and and you know a brand that is differentiated enough to be memorable and when you have those things together yeah you can do a lot with a very little amount of resource
0: okay so so let's talk future where is backdrop how are you thinking about the next year five ten years where are you guys headed sherman williams gonna buy you next year or are you going to ipo through a SPAC? or i'm trying to throw SPACs into our conversations as often as possible because they're so <laughs> all over the ever since Everybody... we
1: had phil Cremon to talk about SPACs. yeah i listened
2: to that yeah. episode and i i still don't know if i understand what a SPAC. is <laughs> like this this whole world is very it's and I, like, I i feel like i know finance okay and it's still very like technical you know, a bit yeah of we were area. gonna
0: ask, we were gonna ask you um but how do you think about the future <laughs> how do you think about the future of uh of backdrop
2: I mean we're really excited we've got a lot of good momentum we've seen like the the brand is resonating paint as a product has been having a moment as more folks are at home investing in their spaces and DIY activities paint being the you know most popular among them but I think what we've seen and I'm sure you guys have seen this too Stephen like your home space will never be looked at the same again. Like we've all spent so much time at home, you know, it's your office, it's your gym, it's your kid's school. In addition to what it was already, like I feel like, you know, people are going to continue to uh, think about their home space differently and invest in their home space differently from like a resource allocation perspective. And so that bodes really well for home businesses and and backdrop being part of that. So we're excited about that. We've got some exciting stuff coming up that can't yet talk about, but know we're evolving as a you know as a small business we're not um we're just taking it a step at a time right we're not trying to be a rocket ship we're trying to take like one foot in front of the other you know be very disciplined but growth oriented and with a very small team lean amount of resource and we feel like we've got like a good formula for that so far
0: i love it thank you for coming on the show thanks for having me this was fun
2: (laughs) class Dismiss.
0: listening if you want to support this podcast the best thing you can do is hit the subscribe button take a minute hit the subscribe button so you'll be notified whenever we come out with a new episode